Hey, open your books to pages eight and nine, um, if you would please, that little chart at the beginning of the book. We won't do this every single week, but the first couple of weeks, I wanna make sure that we're oriented here um, to the whole letter to the Ephesians and, and that we know kind of where we're at for the day and where we're going. So today we're studying, this week at home, you've been studying week two, um, who you are. The title is Who You Are. Um, there are two sections here, uh, 1, 3 to 14, and then chapter 1, verses 15 to 23. Um, those are just little sections um, that are divided out. If you were to read in your, your regular Bibles, you'll see subtitles throughout the scriptures. They're usually... Um, they're usually split up in, in really the same places from one Bible to another, but sometimes they're a little bit different. You know, those are not inspired by God. <laughs> those little separations that we have in our, in our text, the verses, those aren't inspired by God either. They weren't there. The chapter headings weren't there. Um, the little subtitles, those weren't there. Those are all things that editors have added later on in order to make them easy for us to kind of separate and split up and easy for us to get them in sections that are, that are nice and simple to study. And so those sections, as I have split them out, in my own study, and then given them the titles that I've given you there in your chart in my own study are kind of how I have um, begun to split them up and see them. Um, in your Bibles, you might see uh, separations either by subtitles or like maybe even um, a, whole, a whole section break where there's a pretty obvious section break. Uh, those break out into little paragraphs that um, when I was in seminary, they taught me a, a really fancy word for that. You want to say it? Pericope, say that. Pericope. pericope. Say it again. Pericope. It's just a fun word. Pericope. It's just a fun word. And those separate sections, then they just they just kind of frame up a little section of scripture that is a little bit, it's a bite-sized chunk that's a little bit easier to chew on. So today we're going to look at two different pericopes, two different chapter or two different um, sections. Uh, verses three to fourteen. Let's start with that. Chapter one, verses three to fourteen. Um, as I told you last week before you left, in, in Paul's you know, Greek New Testament, in the, in, the, in the Greek that we read, that is a single sentence, one sentence in Greek. Now, if you still have nightmares from elementary school and diagramming sentences in your English classes, then believe me, that's a nightmare to see that, that chunk of scripture as a single sentence with all kinds of words stacked on top of it. It is as though the Apostle Paul was so excited, he couldn't even take a breath because he wanted us to know how blessed we are, how blessed and how fortunate we are because we've been adopted into his family, given his name, and we, now we get all of these wonderful blessings along with it because we're part of the family. We were street urchins before he called us. We were out in the middle, we were homeless and hopeless before he found us and put his eye on us and drew, him to his, drew us to himself and called us by his name. We are so blessed because we're part of his family. That is the, that's the big outline and the big list that you will find in chapter one, verses three to 14. If you read right through it, and if you're marking in your Bibles as I was recommending that you mark with your little colored pencils and pins and highlighters, who's getting into that? Are you getting into the colored pencil? Isn't that fun? It's just fun. That's, there's, 
if that's the best reason you do it, then great enough. If you try it and, uh, and you're like thinking that you're not that into it, that's okay. Your salvation is still secure. <laughs> you're going to go to heaven, but you won't have as much fun. The colored pencils, just mark it out and you start to see these wonderful patterns. You start to see these things repeated over and over again and you start to think to yourself, I think the author was trying to make a point here. I think the author was trying to make a point. Um, He loves these repetitions and this, what we see in verses three to 14 is a list. It's a long list of the wonderful ways that God has blessed us when he brought us into his family. Um, We... The, the way that I outlined it in your workbook um, is that I, ha- I, I just kind of started to observe that the way the list broke out, it breaks into these three lovely little sections where it seems like the first little list of gifts was given to us by God the Father. And the second little separation of, of, of blessings was given to us specifically by God the Son. And, and then we have this big gift at the end from God the Holy Spirit. And it seems as though if we were to think about the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, um, as they interact with us in different ways throughout our lives, we find that we, we have certain blessings from each one of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They enter into our lives. They interact with us differently. They have, they have brought us different and precious gifts um, I'm, I'm working with this kind of uh, metaphor or analogy because I'm not quite sure that it works. It feels almost slightly like it's not perfect to say it, but it's almost like a household with three parents. It's almost like a household with three parents, a Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that are all blessing us. They're all bringing us gifts and treasures in different ways. They have different things to bring to us and to offer us as part of the family, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You should know that at the time of this writing, um, when the original author, when Paul was writing and the audience to which he was writing, the people who first read this, they had never heard the word Trinity. Trinity is not a word that you'll find in your Bibles. It is a scriptural idea, but it's not a scriptural term. It wasn't until 300 and some years later that theologians began to really dig in and unpack and, and examine scripture closely that they, that they began to articulate things like God the Father is God. God the Son, Jesus, is also God. And God the Holy Spirit is also God. So there's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and they are all equal They are all eternal, they are all God, and yet we are what we call monotheists. We believe in one God. There is one God, and the God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, I don't get it. You don't get it. We won't get it. We're not ever going to completely wrap our minds around this, around the identity and and all of the perfect qualities of God. God is bigger than we are. Are you okay with that? (laughs) He is so big and so complex and so beautiful and so wonderful that we are never going to be able to say, I got it. Yeah, I understand God. No, you don't understand God? Well, let me just explain it to you because then once I explain, then you'll understand God. Um, I wish that I could do that. I actually took a class in seminary. And I was in seminary. It was a full semester, a full semester, single class called 
Trinitarianism. And the professor told us at the beginning, he said, I don't understand the Trinity. And when we finish this whole entire class on the Trinity, you've written papers on it, you've read books on it, you've read articles, you've sat in my lectures, you're still not going to understand the Trinity. The thing is that it's just, it's beyond our mind to completely comprehend and understand. But we serve one God, there's one God, he is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, co-equal, co-eternal, three um, appearances, three persons in the person of God, in the single being of God. So there's a little something to think about and scratch your head about when you go home this week. But here, those theologians, those first 300 years are early, early church fathers who articulated the idea of the Trinity. Ephesians was one of their main texts. Ephesians was one of their main New Testament letters that they went back to over and over and over again to see this confirmation, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are all God. So we get a lot of our Trinitarian theology, our Orthodox Christian theology from this letter right here in Ephesians. And so we wonder, we stand in awe, we worship, and we just understand that we're not going to completely understand the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But we have these blessings listed one after the other after the other. The wonderful word at the beginning of the section, and I'm going to read just a little bit in Ephesians chapter 1, starting with verse 3. He says, blessed be the, fa- blessed be God, the, fa- sorry, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. Are you hearing a repetition? Blessing, blessed or blessing. This word, it's repeated again down in verse six. We see another repetition of the same word. We see the word blessed throughout the New Testament in different contexts in different ways. And it's always, always, always a real good thing for us when we see the word blessed or blessing. We have been given these wonderful blessings. This, the way that, the, that the, this word is being used here, though, it is not exactly like it's being used in Matthew in the Beatitudes when it says you're blessed, um, you, you're, uh, blessed, is the, blessed are the poor in spirit or blessed are the other Beatitudes. That word is a little bit different. That word is makarios. This word is eulagos, E-U. Now follow me in, as I spell it for you. E-U-L-O-G, does it sound familiar? E-U-L-O-G, and then O-S is the Greek word, eulagos. You've probably heard it at funerals. People will speak a eulogy. Eu means good and logos means word. It's a good word. It's a good word. And when people pass away and we get together to celebrate their lives, and we get together to, to cry over the, uh, how much we miss them when they die, somebody, and sometimes more than one person, will speak a good word, a eulogy over them and, and help us to remember them with good words. That is significant at the outset of this, of this chapter because eulagos, a good word, praise be to God who has spoken good words over us. He has spoken goodness and grace and mercy and blessing over us. We have been spoken, this wonderful good word has been spoken over to us. And when God speaks, things happen. When God speaks, things are created. 
Things are recreated. Things are redeemed with God's word. This is a good word spoken over us. And then comes this great big list, starting with this one. He chose us. He chose us. You know I'm going to cry at least once in every lecture. (laughs) So there you have it. He chose us. He saw us. He wanted us. He called us by name. And he brought us into his family. And he brought us into the safety under his roof and in his home. And here we find this wonderful safe house, this place where we are, where we are together and we are safe with our siblings, our sisters all around us. This is where he brought us and he wanted us to be his. He has um, not left us out there. He has asked us to be part of his family and given us the freedom to to join in his family and to be part of it. He predestined us. That's the next word that we see. He predestined us. He chose us. He predestined us. He lavished grace on us. These couple of words right at the outset talk about God's will and God's way. That's another um, idea that we're going to be marking with our colored pencils as we go throughout Ephesians. God has a plan. God has a will. He has, there's, there's a certain thing that he wants, and he generally gets what he wants, right? God gets what he wants. Um, and God has this plan that involves us, choosing us, predestining us. Now, we have for many centuries gotten really hung up theologically on this idea of predestination. Uh, it's one of the most joked about theologies in the Christian church. It's one, of, uh, it's one of the most awkward to talk about. It's one of the most weird because, in our, again, in our minds, because our minds are, are not that large, as we start to think about God choosing us, then our minds automatically go to a place where God chooses others to not be in his family, right? Is that the choices that God has made? Has, is God making all the choices? Is God doing all the choosing and we're not doing any? Is God giving us the illusion that we're making choices that we're actually not? Is God, is God removing everything from us and doing everything himself? Or does he give us choices as well? So finally, we, we come down to this argument, and they're, they're still arguing about it, debating about it in solid theological camps on both sides of it. Do we choose God, or does God choose us? Do we choose God, or does God choose us? My answer is yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> God chooses us, and yes, we choose God. He has given us the dignity of allowing us to receive his love or reject his love. He has chosen each and every one of us to become part of his family and to become part of this beautiful, um, wonderful house of God. He chooses us, and yes, we choose him. We find it throughout the New Testament, both doctrines obviously not mutually exclusive, like they are in our little minds, obviously not mutually exclusive. He chooses us, and we choose him. 
If you have been following um, the little red pen or the, the yellow pencil instructions, where I suggest that you color God in a yellow pencil, I don't know why, but eons ago, um, maybe because of Kay Arthur encouraging me, um, maybe, maybe she does yellow, so I did yellow. I don't know why. <clears throat> Always done yellow. You will see repeated throughout Ephesians, whenever you mark Jesus or Christ or sometimes the beloved or anything that might um, refer to Jesus, him, his, then 36 times you will see that there's an in right before it, in Christ, in him, in the beloved. So there's clearly a pattern that, that there's something special about being in Christ. In Christ is a, is a theme that we find not only in Ephesians, but throughout the New Testament, particularly in Paul's writings, 164 times just in Paul's letters that he talks about being in Christ. What does that mean? What does it look like? When we're in Christ, it means that we're covered by his blood. It means that we're protected. It means that the, the, the price that he paid on the cross covers us. We're in Christ. We're covered by the sacrifice of, of his blood. We're in Christ is, the, is the, the full expression of what it means to be a fully devoted follower of Christ. To be in Christ means that we're surrendered to Christ. We, we have given up. We've given up. We've, we've stopped trying to do it on our own and in our own strength and in our own goodness, in our own ability to be good enough. We've given that up and we've surrendered. We've surrendered to the goodness of Christ. That's what it means to be in Christ. It means that we have fully received the blessings and the gifts that are listed on these pages. It means that we have, we don't understand them. We maybe sometimes receive them and then maybe sometimes set them down and think I don't deserve that. I don't get that. That's not for me. And then we have to bring, we have to pick them back up again. And that's when we know that we're in Christ is when we receive these blessings, we own them. We take ownership of them and we participate in them. To be in Christ means that we are children of God and it means that we are in a relationship with the Holy Spirit and it means that we're covered by, by the blood of Jesus. It means that we have this full Trinitarian kind of experience in our lives and now it defines our lives. And the Holy Spirit has sealed us. The Holy Spirit has sealed us. It says in verse 13 that he sealed us like a down payment. He paid a down payment. That means that, that, that we are promised we cannot, um, we cannot lose what we have with God. It is, not, it, it is not something that God will forget about. We are sealed. And over and over again, we see this lovely phrase repeated, to the praise of his glory, to the praise of his glory. We are so blessed. We are blessed, why? Because God chose to bless us. We are blessed for what purpose? To the praise of his glory. Not to the praise of our glory. Not to make us look good, but to make God look good. To glorify his name. These blessings are our inheritance. And by the way, there's more 
there's more. Paul didn't make an exhaustive list here. There's more, there are more blessings that are ours because of this, simply because we received his name and we were adopted into his family. Isn't he good? The Father, the Son, and the Spirit. <clears throat> there is a, um, there's another fancy Greek word. I'm going to teach you another fancy Greek word. Are you re- ready? It's kind of similar to the other one. Remember the word I gave you was pericope? Um, those are freebies. They're not even in your Bible study. You paid for those ones. The, the little Greek to me, called, you paid for those. But these ones I'm giving you now are freebies. Um, so the, these, these early church fathers I was telling you about who made this, uh, the, the first real deep dive study into Scripture and started pulling things out like Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and started articulating doctrines like the Trinity that very, very quickly when the church started to gather and, and, and students of the church began to write these things down and we actually came up with um, you know, doctrinal statements and we came up with what we call creeds, um, when, as they came up with those words, they thought we need, to have, we need to have a word that describes the relationship between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Um, how, what do they do together and how do they act together and how do they behave together? And the word that they use, we don't, we've lost it in English, but the word that they use in Greek is perichoresis, perichoresis. <clears throat> the word peri means around. It's like where we get perimeter, peri. And choresis is, um, means a dance, like choreography, And so the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, they kind of have this dance-around relationship with each other. They're they're dancing around. Um, Eugene Peterson, one of my favorite uh, theologians, describes it like like a square dance. Remember square dancing? Remember sixth grade? Come on. We all did square dancing. Everybody acted like they hated it, but everybody loved it, you know. And we'd go down to the gym, and we'd be paired up with a boy, and we would have to square dance. And remember the square dance? Remember... um, does anybody in the room square dance still? Anybody, like, anybody? No? I know they still do it in some, you know, dark crannies of, the, of, of American culture. They square dance. Um, but in square dancing, everybody, you know, you're, you're there with a partner, and pretty soon you hear a caller, right? You hear a voice. And that voice calls you, and you begin to obey. You begin to do what the voice tells you to do, right? You're, you're hearing this voice, and everybody's hearing the same voice. And then, and then we are responding to the calling. And, and in the dance, then you might, you might, um, you might be kind of dosy doing along, and then pretty soon you're going to alaman left, right? And, and you switch partners, and you're suddenly, now you're with a different partner, and you're dancing with a different partner. It's kind of like that with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We're, we're dancing around. We immediately, we're, we're, we're confronted maybe with our sin, our shame. We understand, we come to an understanding of that and we feel, we feel the gift that, that Jesus Christ gave us and we're, <laughs> I'm just bad today, I don't know what it is. <laughs> but we're dancing with God the Son. And then we, we might witness something in creation that takes our breath away. A sunrise, a sunset, a mountainscape that blows your mind, and you, you've you've do and you're all a man left or whatever, and you're dancing with God the Father. And then you might feel the conviction of, of the Spirit. You might you might be reading your Bible and something opens up brand new to you, and you are dancing with God the Holy Spirit. 
The Father, the Son, and the Spirit, they're always, they're tossing us around and they're dancing with us. They've called us to get off the wall, off our chair, and into the circle and into the dance and, and, and enjoy his company and switch from one to the other. Someone's going to have to bring me a tissue. I see a box right there. Someone will bring me a tissue. We, we experience the Father, the Son, and the Spirit in that way. Thank you so much, sweetie. They, they love us. They want us to participate. They've asked us to join them. They don't want us sitting on a chair. Or sitting it out. Or, thank you, or sitting, or, or being out of it. They want us to be in it. They want us to be in the middle of it. And so they've called us. And they've invited us into the dance. Don't miss this. Don't miss Father, Abba. Don't miss the Son. Don't miss the Spirit. Sometimes their interaction with us is a little painful because it might demonstrate where we're not listening to the caller. It might demonstrate where we've missed one or another step here or there and we find ourselves spinning off somewhere where we're not supposed to be. But as we do, as we begin to hear the rhythm, we begin to feel it, we begin to move, it's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing. The Trinity. Read Ephesians to find the Trinity. So we go from this beautiful section of Scripture, that first pericope, and we move into the second pericope, and we find ourselves, we, in, the, in the first part we see that, um, that, God, that Paul is eulogizing, okay? We go from uh, the first section of eulogy, and then we move into the second section where Paul is actually praying. And it's not the first time that we've seen him do this, and it won't be the last time that we've seen him do this in Ephesians, that he just drops to his knees and he starts to pray. For, the, for this reason, because I've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all the saints, I do not stop giving thanks for you and I re- as I remember you in my prayers, that the God of our Father, of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the Spirit, capital S. When you see a capital S in Scripture, that's His Spirit. A small S is our Spirit. May He give you the Spirit, capital S, of wisdom and revelation and knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened so that you may know what is the hope to which He's called you. Paul is praying... And he is praying that we would have knowledge. He is praying that we would be intelligent. He is praying that we would become more smart, more savvy. I am suspicious of any group of faithful believers when I sense that they are expecting me to check my brain at the door. That they're expecting me to not really think about it too hard, you know? You just believe. Or, or it's super emotional, like you just feel it. Sisters, we are called to think. God has given us our minds for a very good reason. We are called to use our heads. We are not called to walk into church and start thinking, well, I don't need to understand it. I don't need to, I don't need to um, study. I don't need to think. I don't need to discuss. I don't need to talk. I just need to believe, and I just need to worship, and I just need to get this a, a gushy feeling, and then I've been to church. Paul is saying, we're going to get our minds into the act. 
Does that mean that we're going to fully understand the character of God? We just figured out that we're not. We're not ever going to fully understand it. But yes, we do engage our minds. That when we bring, we bring to, the, to uh, Bible study, we bring to our own quiet time, we bring to our small groups with each other, our, our minds fully engaged in the act of loving God. It's called loving God with all your mind. We are called to love him with all our mind. We are not called to say, uh, well, it doesn't need to make sense. It doesn't need to make sense. He is praying that we would have wisdom, revelation, knowledge, that our hearts would be enlightened, that we would know him. I can't remember if I gave you this Greek word in, in um, your Bible study. Did I tell you about know, K-N-O-W? K-N-O-W. It's a funny word, even in English, K-N-O-W. Um, it actually comes from the Greek word G-N-O. We've added the W. Gno. Gnosis or gnosko. That we would gno. <laughs> Not kano, or we eventually kano, but, but that knowledge, the way the word was used in our New Testaments, has with it more, of, more than an intellectual kind of pursuit understanding. Knowledge is not just what you can gain from a book, or reading a book, or passing a test, or mastering a certain um, amount of, of, uh, of material. Knowledge only comes by experience. We must experience the thing. We must walk into it. We must walk around it. We must get all of our senses involved, taste and touch and, and feel. And this is why we, we talk about the only way we can really know a person um, is to be in a relationship with them. If we are just reading about them, in other words, we can never know Christopher Columbus um, we can read all about him, we can know about him, we can read biographies, we can read testimonies of people who knew him, we can, we can get a pretty good grasp of his life, but in order to know him, we would have had to have been in a personal relationship with him. We can know Jesus, the only human being who's walked on the earth and is not walking on the earth at the moment that we can actually know by experience because he's God. Because he's the second person of the Trinity who walked on the earth for a time. And, and there were many, many testimonies about his being here. There are stories about his being here. And because he's God, we can actually know Jesus. We talk about knowing Christ. This is experiential knowledge. And it comes with this spirit of wisdom, revelation, knowledge, that our hearts are enlightened. We don't walk around in the dark. We walk around in the light. He has called us into the light. He's saying, don't shut your eyes and pretend like everything is okay. Open your eyes and see. Everything is not okay. But I'm okay. And we're okay. Because God has redeemed us. And he's brought us into his family and called us okay. Paul praise that we would come to have this understanding of four things specifically that we would understand the hope to which he's called us the hope to which he's called us that we would know what hope is biblical hope is a concept that 
that is unique uh, to, to, to our culture, let me say, as Christians. Biblical hope is a different kind of hope than we, um, than we no- normally talk about in our, in our colloquial English terms. We say that we hope, we hope the sun comes out, we hope our team wins, we hope, you know, we talk about hope in a kind of weak way where it refers to our preference about what might or might not happen. Biblical hope talks about a solid knowledge and absolute certainty that something will happen based not on us or on anything we have to do with it, but based on the character of God. Biblical hope is real. It's solid. It is strong. And that's the hope to which he's called us. Paul prays that we will know, experience the hope to which he's called us. He prays that we will experience the riches, the wealth of his glorious inheritance in the saints. That we would know not only the future that he has for us in heaven, but that we will know the glorious inheritance that we receive now. That the glorious inheritance of being part of God's family is something we enjoy and live with even now being part of his family, the, the, the blessings of our, of our adoption. And he prays that we would know the immeasurable greatness of the power that, he, that is available to us who believe. Power. <clears throat> In your Bible study, one of the sections was on this idea of being part of, <clears throat> excuse me, being part of a power family, a power family who has a powerful name. And the kind of name that when you throw this name around, things get done, things happen. Um, We all have known families like that. We hear about them on TV. And please understand that when we were adopted into the family of God, we were adopted into the ultimate power family. This is the most powerful family, the kind of power that raised a man uh, from the grave up to life. And then he ascended into heaven. and, And that same man now sits at the right hand. God, Jesus sits at the right hand of God and is God. That's the kind of power that we're talking about in the power family to which we were adopted. Jesus has been appointed as head over the church, as head over all who believe, which now is the head over this, this central body of believers that are alive right now, the ones who have been alive before us and the ones who will be alive after us. And one day, it will be the only people anywhere as we live together in heaven with him, as he is the head over all things, the head over the church. He prays that we will know who Jesus is. He prays that we will know the true identity and the true depth of the character of Jesus himself. It starts in verse, let's see, they, they did run a lot of these English sentences together. Let's start reading in verse 20. That he worked in Christ in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand of the heavenly places. For above all rule and a, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named. That's power, right? That's the kind of power we're talking about. Not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he will put all things under his feet, and he gave him his head over all things to the church, which is the body, the fullness of him, who fills all in all. His church is the body, the fullness of Christ, who fills all in all. Now we have the opportunity 
to participate in this church, in the fullness of Christ, to be the fullness of Christ in all and through all. We have the opportunity to participate, to be his hands and his feet. We're the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, the love of God, the priesthood of all believers. We have the opportunity to learn about God. This church has been given the dignity of an assignment. We have stuff to do. We have things, we have a mission to accomplish. We've been, we've been charged with the task of going to all the nations and making disciples and baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to be obedient, to be compliant, to fit in with everything Jesus taught and said. We have the opportunity, the dignity, the privilege of doing this work and, and, and so much more. He could, he could do it without us. He doesn't need us. He could do it much more efficiently, as a matter of fact, without us bumbling around at it. But he's chosen us and called us and given us the opportunity to do this. Do you believe it? Do you believe it? Is it part of your faith? Is it part of your statement? Is it part of who you are? That's who we are. Amen and amen. Ruana, come and close us in prayer. Our Father, which art in heaven, how will be thy name? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. We now ask, as Paul did in 1 Thessalonians, I have one more thing to share with you. We ask that the Lord Jesus pour on his love, pour on his love through the power of the, his precious Holy Spirit so that it fills our lives and splashes over on everyone around us. Goodbye. To be continued. <laughs>